Welcome to the third episode in the Goodwill Hunters Winter Series on Water for Development. I'm your host, Rosie Ween, CEO of WaterAid Australia. And in this series, I'm joined by my co-host, Michael Wilson, CEO of the Australian Water Partnership. In this episode, we're in conversation with Navara Kine, the Director of Programs for WaterAid PNG, and also Alison Baker, who's the Manager for International Development at GHD and leading the DFAT-funded Water for Women program. You are going to hear their personal passions that drive their work on water for development, and particularly human development. You're going to hear their perspectives that go from the theoretical right to the practical, how Navara, as a Papua New Guinean woman, is leading the complex work of achieving universal access to water and sanitation in Papua New Guinea. They're going to unpack the connections between water resource management, climate change and gender equality, again, taking that from theory to practice. And they'll share their fears and hopes for addressing the water crisis. We hope you enjoy the episode. Water scarcity and water security challenges are growing at an unprecedented pace, affecting billions of people globally. The United Nations has said that in over 300 locations, we can expect to see conflict over water by 2025. This is exacerbated by continuing population growth and the impacts of climate change. So what happens if we do nothing? My name is Rachel Mason-Nunn, founder of Goodwill Hunters. This series is brought to you with support from the Australian Water Partnership. As a Water for Development initiative supported by the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, the Australian Water Partnership mobilises Australia's internationally recognised expertise to drive action towards sustainable water management in our region and beyond. We're so glad you can join us for this crucial conversation on our shared global water future this winter on Goodwill Hunters. As we do start... I'd like to acknowledge that I'm joining you from the lands of the Kulin Nation and Michael from Ngunnawal country. We extend our respect to their elders past, present and emerging and thank them for their care of country and waters. And we extend that respect to all our First Nations listeners. We all know that everybody needs a sustainable supply of safe water for cleaning, for drinking, cooking. It's a basic human right. We also know that for millions of people around the world, that isn't their reality. A story for me that really brings that into a human story is from visiting Papua New Guinea a number of years ago. I was lucky enough to be visiting a community where WaterAid and our partners had been working and we were launching a simple gravity-fed scheme that was going to transform the lives of that community. And I was walking around that community with a grandmother called Dorothy. She came up to about my shoulder, but had an incredible energy about her with her silver hair and a sparkler in her eye. She showed me the tap that was outside her home. And as she turned on that water, she also teared up a bit. And she looked at me and she said, Rosie, I never imagined that I would see this in my lifetime. In this episode, we are going to be speaking to two people working to change this reality on the ground to bring our goal of universal access to water and sanitation closer to a reality. 
Navara and Alison, welcome to the podcast. Navara, you've had a really diverse professional life and a pretty fascinating one at that. You started off studying psychology and then you went and worked in the private sector. Now you lead water rights programming in Papua New Guinea. Can I start by asking, how did you end up working on water? Thanks, Michael. Um, how did I end up uh, working in water? Well, for me, um, my interest has always been working in um, development. So I guess, you know, um, as what you mentioned, I, I my journey through the development field probably started in 2006 when I started with Family Health International. Um, that was working with more, you know, um, health-related um, HIV, AIDS, and STIs. Um, but, like, for me, development is... There's so many different ways to look at um, development. So essentially, if you're working in health education, you're somehow contributing to development. So I guess my my um, passion has always been to work in the development space. And I was just fortunate enough to land, you know, with WaterAid when the opportunity came up in 2019 to work, work in, you know, directly in um, water sanitation and hygiene. So uh, before that, I had some experience working um, with water sanitation hygiene more at a broader um, development level, but now you know it's uh, you know I've been fortunate to be able to work directly in water sanitation and hygiene, where you are still contributing to the development um, of the country, even more so. You know, water being a really um, essential part, water sanitation hygiene being such an essential part of development. It's just that opportunity to you know work, work in that space. So um, you know, my passion is development, and water sanitation hygiene just happens to be one you know key part of development that I've been fortunate enough to land in, in that space, yeah. Amazing, Navara. WaterAid, so lucky to have you. And it's fantastic, you know, hearing your passion for development and the role that water and sanitation plays in that. And Alison, for you, um, I mean, you've also had an incredibly diverse career that has often focused on water and the environment. As I understand it, your first role was in Indonesia in 1997, working on an environmental management program. You're now working for GHD, leading the DFAT-funded Water for Women program. What about you? What's, what's kept your passion for water and the environment over the years? Um, thanks, Rosie. And by, um, I'm just going to have a slightly different tack to, to Navarra. I took a bit longer to get there. <laughs> I um, I started, as you say, in, in 1997 in Indonesia, but I had some 10 or 15 years before that. Um, I, I graduated out of chemical engineering. So fluid and water was a big part of that. Um, and then I actually joined a manufacturer. And that was actually where my first interest in the environment actually came from was looking at I won't mention the company but um, working for one of those organizations and seeing what actually happens so I then actually went back to university to study environmental engineering and water and wastewater was a core part of that I then moved to Australia and got involved in sort of water wastewater environmental areas on the domestic front at that point in time and then in 1996, I got the opportunity to, as you say, uh, work on a project, environmental management project in Indonesia. And I sort of never looked back from that. Obviously, dealing with the environment, you're dealing a lot with water. Um, opportunities then arose where I was able to bring that water piece back in, um, looking at water safety planning, uh, looking at actually my next project was in Bangladesh uh, when a lot of that arsenic 
uh, contamination was happening. So really got interested and uh, interested, but could really see the plight of people when they don't actually have access to safe water. Uh, yet so many inspiring stories that we could see um, that made differences to people's lives as we as we went. So it's actually then evolved from there done a whole range of different things in both urban supplies and and rural supplies and yes in the late uh, 2017 had the opportunity to take on the water for women fund and work with all the different partners to really make that difference on the ground so i feel very privileged and very lucky to have done that and it's given me a lot of uh insights into people all the way around the world that's how i keep my my passion because it's really about people and you see the difference that you're making in people's lives, but probably even more importantly, the difference that they're making in their own lives, because um, it's us all actually working together. We might bring a bit of technology or a bit of thinking to them, but they've got to really pick it up and run with it. And for me, that's what actually keeps me really inspired and interested and committed to this sector. The work you both do is all about changing people's lives through access to water, sanitation and hygiene. Navara, we know that the water crisis is a gendered crisis, which of course mean that, means that it impacts differently on women and men, boys and girls. What examples can you give relating to everyone equally benefiting from access to water, sanitation and hygiene services, but also playing that essential key role in decision making? Thanks, Michael. Um, I guess, you know, in terms of decision making, I, you know, we recognise that as a, you know, key part, especially in PNG, where you have, um, I mean, I'll give an example of, you know, the community-based water um, or water, uh, sorry, community wash that we do. Um, CNG, largely across maybe 90% of our community's culture, it's patrilineal. So men have naturally been, you know, leaders not only in the home, but also in the community. So I guess it's been a case of kind of tweaking our process to try and increase that women's um, participation in, in decision-making. So it can be little things about the processes that we're implementing. For instance, if it's a community wash project, you know, we like to involve the community at the, you know, engage them at the initial stages of any um, community wash project we do um, for sustainability as well as, you know, sustaining the outcomes afterwards. So it's it's been a case of, you know, tweaking our processes where we, um, encourage women's participation at the very beginning where we work with the community to establish, say, um, community wash committees and, um, you know, stress to them, first of all, the importance of gender and having women participate. And Navara, can I ask you, what sort of resistance, if any, do you get to these sorts of initiatives and these sorts of processes? And how do you overcome that resistance? Um, I think, you know, uh, Men, I, I guess, you know, at, at the beginning, you, the men would take the natural leadership role. If you're working in communities, they'd want to naturally, you know, come and um, take take the lead in this. But we, we try and um, address it in a kind of um, collaborative way where we talk to the communities first about why gender is important to us, why women, you know, bear most of the burden of, you know, water sanitation and hygiene and why we, we want to increase women's participation um, in, in the process. So it's really a case of from the initial uh, that engagement, you know, with the community, really outlining what we're about and why, why it's important and then taking them along on the journey and explaining to them. So, you know, it's a process of um, getting them accustomed to, you know, what, we, what we're about and why, why women's um, participation is so important. Yeah. Alison, as, 
you know, hearing the, the, the work that Navarra is describing in Papua New Guinea and thinking about what you were talking before of what fuels your passion is seeing the work on the ground and the work from the partners within the Water for Women Fund. What are some of the, the lessons that, that you see that we can take from the work of, of Water for Women and, and your partners? Um, great question, Rosie, and, and really building on what uh, Navara has already said. I, I think some of the really key things that we are learning is it isn't just about involving women or people with disability. It's making sure that we involve everybody in the, the community. Um, and as Navara has indicated, there's there oftentimes can be that resistance, but it is about having those conversations and understanding when to have those conversations together but also when to have this, the conversation separately. Sometimes you do actually need to, to separate, separate it out. And I think a great example is something like menstrual hygiene management, which is not something that we talk a lot about, even in Australia, openly. Um, but by exploring those different conversations and bringing men and boys into those conversations at school or within the communities, COVID was a great example of where something like menstrual hygiene, the whole supply chain actually broke down. But so it, it became a real issue to everybody. But having those conversations together in a classroom so people can really understand boys and girls, what those issues are. It doesn't need to be a mystery. It's a, it's a very sort of natural part of life. So it's removing some of those taboos and um, traditional perspectives as that uh, of that. But it's so it's working together. But then there's times when you need to actually have those conversations separately where it might be the women and what, what do they need or the, the girls and what they need. So I think those are some of the really big things that we're learning is when to have the appropriate conversations um, about an issue like that, but but also some of those broader issues. I know there was some work done in, in Fiji a little while ago and, and just picking up what Michael's question in terms of doing no harm and resistance. Um, so it's having those conversations, even within some of the partner organisations themselves, where they need to understand their own biases or their own sort of perceptions of things that they actually didn't really know that they had. And... So by them going through that process, they're going, oh, well, I did actually didn't realize that that was the impact I was having, or I didn't understand if I did that, it could be interpreted as that. Um, so, yeah, so it's, it's building on, on all of those different things and making sure those open conversations can be had. Thanks, Alison. These are sometimes difficult conversations to have across a range of different themes, all of which might create sensitivities or be subject to certain biases in your stakeholders. So that's a very important message. Navara, Allison has raised the issue of how we continue these efforts through COVID. And of course, where you are in Papua New Guinea, you're in the middle now of a full-blown COVID crisis. So do you have any advice about how organisations like your own can navigate this twin crisis of water and COVID? Thanks, um, Michael. And just uh, probably going back to Alison's um, points about context. So Alison made a good point about different contexts will be will will entail different approaches. So it's understanding the context as well, I guess. Um, just building on what Alison said, you know, PNG has a different context across the board. There's so many different contexts to work in. So it's um, as implementers, it's understanding the context and what approaches to take when you work in those contexts. Um, with the Coming back to your question on the, you know, the COVID and WASH approach, well, I guess um, the fortunate thing about, um, not fortunate, but one opportunity that's come out of the 
COVID situation is that there's been more focus and more, um, especially from government, more resources put towards um, wash and increasing wash in in the in the communities um, as well as you know with, uh, yeah in the communities where we work in. So um, I I mean I guess working with COVID and and wash is just that access to water to practice good good hygiene. So we've been fortunate where you know the government has given. Uh, more money to implementers to go out there and implement, say, in the towns in hand washing stations for schools. Or, um, unfortunately, in a, in a emergency response, so you're looking for more um, quick, quick kind of response, rapid response. So you know, uh, money funding could be there, say, for a water supply, but it might not be enough time to go and implement a full-on water supply unless you're already in that space. So, other, you know, you're looking at other solutions for increasing access. So, I guess with water, um, water aid. We've kind of been, and I think other, you know, other organisations as well. We've been implementing um, awareness or more promotion of low-cost, um, I guess, hand washing solutions. Um, we have what we call a tipita, which is a, it's a, you know, it's an implement where it's a, it's like a construction of a, a tap, I guess, or what you call a mobile tap made out of ready-to-use or um, accessible. Uh, materials, you know, you get a container, you put it on a, a rack, so you could have water and bring it closer to your household. So we've been promoting, you know, low cost um, hand washing, those sort of solutions to make it easier for places that don't have closer access to water to have greater access. So I think in PNG, you know, for me, I think about the water issue, it's not about availability, it's, it's availability, um, but we have a lot of, you know, natural water resources. You have rivers, you know, across the country, but it's access is more the, the issue with us is how do you bring that available water closer to to your um, to for people to access. So, um, you know, you're looking at solutions for each context of how you bring that access closer. And I guess in the uh, with COVID, with the emergency response, how do you do that quicker? So it's looking for the most appropriate and um, appropriate solutions for the for the situation and the context. Yeah. Thanks, Navara, very much for that. Alison. Yeah, I'd just like to, to build on that. Thanks, Navar. You, you captured so many of the important aspects of sort of wash and COVID. And I think just building on that and taking that out more broadly, we, we did see that very much across the fund that it was so well positioned to help respond to COVID because water, hand hygiene, just even overall general health became such an important underpinning response to COVID. So while a, a terrible situation that we're all dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis, it I think it, it has actually played a role in raising the importance of WASH as something that's fundamental to all development uh, response, but also to humanitarian or um, to emergency response as well. So I think people have always known that to a certain degree, but I think it's really raised the profile and, and the need to really find the funding uh, to support that because without it, other things we can't build on top of other things. Thank you both very much for these fascinating reflections. I wanted to move on now to the question of water resource management and water for human development. So we know these two sets of issues and the responses to those issues are different, but they're completely and inextricably interlinked. So Alison, what are the interlinkages that you see between water for development and water resource management? And do you ever see the two conversations going on in parallel? And if so, isn't that a problem? Thanks. Thanks, Michael. Great question. And it's a conversation I've had quite a bit over the last 
couple of years and I know sort of it's an international conversation that's been going for on for a number of years so to answer your first question in terms of do we see these conversations going in parallel absolutely um, and they continue to happen in parallel though I think there's quite a number of us kind of going but this doesn't make any sense where do we find those touch points how do we actually try and work together they do often work at very different scales uh, you've got water resources that could be transboundary sort of major river systems, um, whereas water and sanitation is it often occurs more at sort of a catchment or, or localized level. But you can't separate the two because a big water, uh, big water river system obviously ends up in a catchment that people are actually drawing water from. So I, I think we need to explore the issue and maybe something at a catchment level starts to have those conversations. Uh, but areas where I really think they'll start to come together is climate change is one of those, the whole water security issue. I think gender and social inclusion is a really important aspect as well. How do you bring different people together to have those conversations and I think it's actually creating the spaces to bring some of the water resource practitioners and the water uh, water sanitation and hygiene practitioners together and facilitate those conversations make sure they actually understand each other's perspectives I think we actually now do but I think there's a misunderstanding that they can't actually work together and, and I very much think that they they can work together and water and sanitation and hygiene is a is a small part of that whole water resource piece, but it's a really critical part of the water resource uh, piece. And we need to just make sure that those conversations are happening. So I would say sort of climate change and gender social inclusion are two obvious touch points to start to explore some of those, um, those areas and, and have those joint conversations. Because it's only when you have those, you start to really find the solutions. Alison, I think that's so powerful, as you say, those bring those conversations together. And Navarra, it'd be great to get a practical example from you. As Alison said, you know, these conversations happen at an international level, a national level. And I know that you've been doing work at a district level with the government and East SIPIC in thinking particularly around water security and how can the government get data uh, up-to-date up data to help inform their water planning. I, am I right? I think that the data that they had been using was rainfall data from the 1970s to plan um, their water their water plan in, in the district. So can you share a little bit of a, the practical work that you've been doing with the district government in Papua New Guinea? Yeah, that's right. I think, um, you know, with um, water aid here in uh, our work, we take a very much system strengthening approach. So it, it's been kind of working with the government to um, improve their services and improve their um, processes. So, you know, one of the key things that we take for granted is that they have the data to, to you know, implement all that. So it's kind of raising their um, levels of the importance of, of data and assisting them in ways to, you know, get the relevant data. So, you know, um, but even with climate change, you know, it's a newer area for it, in the country, let alone a district level to work with. So it's slowly bringing them um, into that space by, first of all, um, direct them. So we've linked them, you know, through, through our work with the Water for Women, we've linked them with the um, the HARP group. Um, oh, I, Rosie, you'll have to help me with the acronym for HARP. It's uh, um, they're a group of engineers that, that are doing um, kind of pro bono work um, in that climate space. So we've kind of linked them with the, um, with the district government through our, our work um, 
with them and they've kind of directed us in the right way, which data to be um, collecting uh, for, to in increase the, see how we can ha have more, you know, wash uh, climate resilient um, wash systems. Yeah. That's fantastic. It's so important, isn't it, to get that data into the hands of decision makers for the planning of sustainable water supplies. And of course, I mean, that's, you've both raised the decision-making and who gets to be around the table and the gendered nature of that um, across the region. You talked about, Alison, and, and particularly you touched on Papua New Guinea and the 90% of Papua New Guinea being a patriarchal society, Navara. Uh, Alison, perhaps you can um, share a few of your thoughts on what you're seeing around who is making decisions on water resource allocation and, and what are the things that you think we need to be doing to address that to make sure that it is equitable and taking the views of men and women's um, perspectives? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Rosie. Um, I think oftentimes a lot of those water resource decisions, it's, it's often made by engineers and I'll, I'll take, um, I'm one of them, um, but oftentimes they are, uh, they are men, um, although that's, that sort of changing sort of sort of through the years so but but regardless of that and I, I partly say that in jest but um it, it, oftentimes those kind of uh, within say department of infrastructure or department of water resources they tend to be more male dominated historically although again that's sort of changing but at the same time those tend to be the people around the table um the groups that we need to start to bring in are are, are linking together those uh those those social implications as well because we often deal with things as a Sort of the infrastructure and the water bit and then there's the people bit and they all operate independently and and that there's not that connection actually between the two um and oftentimes we associate sort of women in some of those more social protection areas and uh and men in those others and that, that that's very stereotypical and it is changing but it is the way that it, it is existing in so many different countries so again it's starting to actually change the conversation and bringing more parties in uh, together um, and really understanding you can't separate the water and the infrastructure from the people and making sure that the voices of various people actually start to actually come together and, and look at what the solutions are going forward. And I think Navara touched on it, that whole uh, system strengthening approach. Um, and it is looking at it as a system within Water for Women, we're, we're definitely looking at it. Um, it's the, the water and the water and sanitation system, but I think it's, it's edging out to, to, to bring in some of those more water security aspects as well and climate change. I think we see such fragmentation right across where water is actually managed and where health and where sanitation is managed. And the only way, and I think climate change is really gonna drive this, is to actually bring those different perspectives together again, which I've sort of said earlier, that's the only way we're going to actually try and find those solutions and get those different voices because as getting those different perspectives, we can then start to find new ways of actually doing things. That's great, Alison. And Navara, did you want to build on that? Yeah, I think that's a great point that Alison made. And I guess that I'm going back to uh, Michael's question about whether, you know, what are resource management and um Water washes, you know, human development interlink, and Alison hit the nail on the head. I think it's bringing um, the users or the end um, beneficiaries into the conversation, and you know, women being the 
people, you know, the most who use um, and biggest end users of, of water and biggest beneficiaries of water, they need to be, I guess, involved in that conversation. And it's through these, you know, our interventions that we can um, bring bring women into the uh, conversation. Or, yeah. Absolutely. Great. Thank you, both of you. For any of us who work in international development, the work always involves a continuing dialogue between hope and fear. So I'd like to ask Alison first, what's the thing that worries you most about the current water crisis? And then what's the thing that gives you the most hope about our ability to manage the water crisis? Great question. I like that question. <laughs> um, I think the thing that worries me most is we're just moving too slowly. Um, all these different competing agendas and whether we call it power dynamics or politics, whatever word you want to actually choose, it just often gets in the way of actually us trying to make progress and do good things. Um, it was kind of actually really interesting. My son, we were watching a something on the, the AFL football the other night and it was it was talking about racism. And he said, oh, this is why we're not doing more great things on the planet because we're tied up in all these saying bad things about each other. And I just thought it was such a beautiful example of a sort of a young person's perspective. If we could actually look out for each other more and respect each other, we're going to be able to actually do more great things together. And if we can carry some of those thoughts to the, the future, then we're, we're in safe hands. So I think that's where my hope then comes from. Well, I'm a bit worried about some things. Uh, I think my hope comes from the fact, even within the fund itself, we've got all these different partners working together. Uh, we might disagree on the approach or exactly what it is that we need to do, but we've got a common purpose and we're working through those different roles and those different perspectives to try and move forward. And what we've started to be able to achieve in the fund by working together and bringing those different perspectives, women, disability, sexual and gender minority communities, other marginalized communities, the NGOs, government, private sector, all of those different things working together and listening to each other and working out how we can actually maximize those different perspectives to find uh, more ideal solutions and to start to move faster. So it's those kind of things that actually give me hope. Um, we're making little bits of progress. We'd love to be able to, to move faster, but I think we've started to really demonstrate if you do bring all those different voices together, whether that be at a, let's say at a fund level and a, talking to, to various partners around Australia and, and overseas or actually within the country level or actually at a community level, you bring those together, then people, people are innovative. We can actually try and find solutions and that's what gives me hope. Yeah, that conversation with your son gave me goose pimples. Um, Navara, so you're sitting there in Papua New Guinea leading an incredibly complex but dynamic program having an incredible impact. So what about for you? What, what worries you about the water crisis and what does give you hope and drive your incredible work and passion every day? Thanks, Rosie. Um, I think I'd agree with us, and it's just the rate at which we're moving. But probably, you know, the problem is so so great um, that we're probably not moving at the at the right pace. And for me, it's just getting the government on board with that because you know ultimately we need their support to drive it as a system. You know, taking a systems approach to driving and addressing these issues. So the government and not having prioritizing wash tigers would be. Um, uh, reason for this, you know, the slow rate, you know, agreeing with Alison. But I think the hope is that, you know, there's a lot of great work being done. 
And it's just about, you know, demonstrating that or really highlighting the evidence that, you know, this can be done. These are the, you know, outcomes that can come out of um, addressing WASH or for development. And there's a lot of great work being done. I guess it's just highlighting it in, in the same uh, to the to the people in in power and also the, the advocacy is, is where our hope is to really um, emphasize the importance of WASH and what benefits it can, it can bring. Yeah, Amazing. And Navara, do you think sometimes decision makers have trouble prioritizing? There's just so much to do. Where do you start? That's that's correct. I think with prioritizing, um, yeah, they then there's political influence that I've seen in PNG politics. They usually go for the quick fix or what's in you know what's the flavor of the day. For instance, you know, coming so near to elections, I'm I'm using again government as an example. Their priorities lie in different areas, so. It's, I mean, in a way, it's kind of decorating it up as well. We we can present our evidence, but how can it benefit, you know, in, in a tangible way that will also be attractive to, you know, say whoever the political followers are. So, you know, unfortunately, that's just the way politics works. And if you're working in a government system, it's how you, how you, you know, utilize that. But ultimately, it's how do you make them see the importance and um, help them to get that support behind, um, behind WASH. Yeah. If I, I could just add to that. Two great points, uh, Navara. But I, I can think what I want to add too. And again, we're really exploring this through the Water for Women Fund. We've we've started with a wash program. We've brought that idea of well, we can actually use wash as an entry point to look at gender and social inclusion and really not just change people's lives from a service delivery of wash services, but really change their involvement in decision making um, and their contributions to the community. But at another level, it's been really interesting, just the conversations we've had, even within DFAT or just more broadly within the sector, all of a sudden, the water teams and the wash teams are talking to, well, the water resources people, we're talking to the health people, the education, the gender uh, branch as well. So actually bringing all those different things together, it's 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 been a really, again, interesting conversation. We keep coming back to the conversation, but it's active conversations. People are actually recognizing, well, actually, if you get start off with that water and sanitation piece, there's so many other flow on benefits that come from that. So it's 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 expanding it out and it's just not a single solution. And I think that as people start to recognize that, hopefully then people start to invest in, at that level, but then they're getting all the other benefits that go along with that as well. So I just wanted to add that in as well. Mm, and it just starts to become obvious. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think it is going back to, you know, reflecting on the story at the beginning that I shared of Dorothy in Papua New Guinea. That's how she experiences water in her life, isn't it? That opportunity that then opens up for education and health and livelihood activities. And that's how we need to be approaching and thinking about development, um, water for development. Um, And that's what you both have done such an incredible um, job in this conversation, in this episode, Navarra and Alison, to really bring that complexity into some really concrete examples around water for development and around particularly the human side of it, but also the interlinkages uh, with water security. So I hope that everyone has enjoyed listening to this third episode in the Goodwill Hunters Winter Series on the Water for Development. Uh, Look out for our next episode in the series where we'll be exploring what happens when climate change conflict and water security collide. 
with none other than Malcolm Turnbull and Howard Bamsey. Thanks, everyone. Thanks.